0: Well, good morning. Uh, You can reply to that if you'd like. (laughs) I don't know your traditions here, so good morning. (laughs) It's a joy for me and for my wife, Courtney, to be with you all here today, to worship together with you, to see uh, for ourselves uh, all that the Lord's doing. I realized in preparing to come this week that it's almost to the day a year ago that I was here and and had the opportunity to preach uh, downstairs and uh, I'm sure there are some of you in the room this morning who weren't there then. And, and it's just a reminder to me of all that God's been doing. And I assure you that uh, your brethren in Mebane uh, love you. And, and uh, we're so interested in, in what God is doing here at Emmanuel. We do pray for you. And uh, we've just been blessed and encouraged uh, by all that God has done from this time last year to now even it really is remarkable to us uh what the lord has been doing here in building a church uh in this place uh, and that's that's you all that's i mean it's wonderful the 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 developments with the building uh, but the church is is the people it's the people of god and and uh, we rejoice in in god adding to this church through conversions um uh, that that's just thrilling and then the way that he's bringing together uh, a people in this place to worship and serve him here. So it's it's delightful to be with you. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be looking together at 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1. Um, if I could dare say such a thing, I think 11, 1 really should be ten thirty-four. I don't mean to shock you by saying that you know that the chapter and verses uh, numbers are not inspired, right? Um, So uh, they had to make these decisions. I'm not sure they why they made 11:1, 11:1. It really does go with what goes before it. So we'll take 10:23 through chapter 11:1. Let's read uh, these verses together. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray one more time and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Father, you have told us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And you have said in another part of your word that it is your desire for your people to open their mouths wide, and it's your heart to fill us with with good things. And so we take you at your word, Lord. We confess again that we need you, and we come this morning as people who are so needy of your word And we desire to to be fed by you, uh, by your spirit taking your word and and causing it to to reach our hearts and and to go down into us and to become a part of us, Lord. You know every person here this morning. You, You know every soul. You know every need represented in this congregation this morning. And so we open our mouths wide and we ask you to fill us with your truth, that you would direct our hearts to you, that you would change us by your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to ask you a question as we begin this morning, and the question is this. Why are you here? Why are you here? And uh, by uh, why are you here, I don't mean literally why are you sitting here in these uh, pews in this location here in With- Winston-Salem. Uh, I- I'm asking the, the bigger picture question, kind of the philosophical question. Uh, why do you exist? Why uh, uh, are you in the world? What is the purpose of your existence? What is the meaning of your life in this world? And Uh, I know that that, that's kind of a a big question to be thinking about at uh, 10 after 11 on a Sunday morning, and maybe we're already starting to to think about lunch, and uh, maybe some of you are young, uh, teenagers, or even younger here this morning, and maybe this kind of question hasn't ever even occurred to you. I encourage you, even those who are the youngest here this morning, uh, to to think for a moment about this question. Why am I... Why am I in the world? Why am I alive? Why do I exist? What's the purpose of my life? Maybe some of you are older here this morning and and, uh, you have some some gray hairs. Uh, Maybe you think that you're sort of beyond thinking about this question, you know. This is a question for uh, uh, late teens and just getting out of college trying to figure out what life's all about. Well, I want to encourage you to think about this question too. No matter where you are this morning, to, to just ponder in a fresh way What's the purpose of my life? Why do I exist in the world? One of the reasons that I am a Bible-believing Christian, as I stand here before you this morning, apart from uh, the sheer mercy and grace of God to me, a sinner, is that the Bible provides a really satisfactory answer to this question. What's the purpose of my life? What's the reason for my existence? Why am I in the world? I submit to you, the Bible gives a very satisfactory answer to that question. By satisfactory, I mean I think it's intellectually satisfying, I think it's philosophically satisfying, and most of all it's spiritually satisfying. I think the Bible gives us a really solid answer to this question, especially in contrast to all the other possible answers that all the philosophers and all the thinkers and all the people in the world have ever tried to offer an answer to this question. Because if you search this out and you consider what even the the greatest minds that this world has ever seen have offered an answer to this question, I think it leaves you very empty. And, and most of the answers of most of the philosophers in the history of the world to this question leave you in despair. But the Bible's answer doesn't. The Bible explains very well why we're here and why we exist and what is the purpose and the meaning of our lives. And I won't take the time to uh, give you a full explanation of the Bible's answer to that, that question, but I think you could really do no better in summarizing the Bible's answer to that question than the words of 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. Look there again. Why do we exist? What's the purpose of our lives? Paul says in 1031, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That, that, that's the Bible's answer. Why are we here? Why do we exist? Why has God made us? Why does he sustain our lives every day? It is so that we might live for him. So that we might live for his glory. And, and, and what does that mean? Well, very basically, very simply, I think it means that having been made by God in his image, we are to reflect him. We're we're to to show forth something of what he is like, his quality, his his characteristics. And we are to seek to bring attention to him. We're we're to direct others around us to God who made us and, and who sustains us. We're to live for the glory of God. That's why we are here. That's why we exist. That's what we were made for. That's what we're designed to do. And I believe that we are at our very best as human beings. We are at our very best as image bearers of God when we are living for his glory, reflecting in our lives what he is like and why he is so worthy to be known and to be loved and to be trusted and to be obeyed. So this morning I want us to think about living for the glory of God, and we'll do that by examining chapter 10 and verse 31 of 1 Corinthians in its context. And that's an important part of uh, how I've put this message together, looking at this big idea of living for the glory of God, according to the words of 1031, in their context. Now, When you think about this verse, this is understandably a very well-known Bible verse, isn't it? Perhaps when I announce this text or have mentioned 1 Corinthians 10.31, maybe many here this morning have memorized this verse. It's one of those verses that... I, I believe can be rightly lifted out of its context and and uh, it kind of stands alone as expressing one of the important and profound truths in all of scripture and you can you can handle it that way and and you can apply it in a wide variety of ways but there is a danger in doing that even with a great Uh, epitomizing verse like this there's a danger in taking out of its context because in a sense when we do that the danger is that we can kind of make it say whatever we want it to say and we can think of something like living for the glory of God however we want to think about it but when we examine a verse like this in its context I believe we, we can get some really good clues as to what it means to live for the glory of God in specific ways you see, Paul didn't write these words in the context of a treatise on the meaning of life. He wrote these words as part of a very practical discussion about the eating and drinking habits of first century Christians in the city of Corinth. Isn't that interesting? Do you, do you tend to think of living for the glory of God in the context of sitting down at the dinner table? And what you eat and what you drink. Well, that's the context in which this great text is given to us. Now, I want to acknowledge, as we begin to move toward toward our our study this morning, that this passage is talking about things that are a little bit strange to us. As I read through this section, did did you feel that a little bit? A little bit of distance between us and what Paul is talking about here. Uh, It's kind of a foreign world to us. Um, John Stott wrote a book on preaching called Between Two Worlds. And when I first heard that title, uh, I thought, well, surely he's talking about the the job of preaching is to connect us in this world to the world to come. But that's actually not what that book's about. What he's talking about there is that the job of the preacher is to connect us in our world, which for us is 21st century America, to the world in which the, the word of God was given. Because there's a distance, isn't there? There, There's a separation, and it's sometimes hard for us to understand the context in which these words were written. And that's what we have to try to do this morning. So, what's the fuss about eating and drinking here in the first century in Corinth? What's the fuss about meat that happened to be purchased from the market? Well, what we need to understand, or try to understand, is that first century Corinth was immersed in pagan idolatry. And that is what is a bit foreign to us, although we're living in days, aren't we, where our society is moving more and more in the direction of becoming like first century Corinth or Athens or Greece. But it's still kind of foreign to us. Their culture, their society was immersed in pagan Idolatry, And what we have to understand is their religion, their paganism, wasn't just a Sunday morning only kind of thing. It wasn't like they just went to the, the, the pagan temple uh, at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning and then it had no impact on the rest of their lives. It permeated their lives and their society. It was everywhere. It impacted the economy. It impacted buying and selling. It impacted their home life. It impacted their entertainment, even eating and drinking. And so, let's think about becoming a Christian in that kind of an environment, in that kind of culture. As the gospel came to a city like Corinth, and God blessed the preaching of the gospel, and men and women and young people began to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to become followers of Jesus Christ, it was out of that environment that God saved them. And so you can understand they found it challenging to work out the implications of their new life in Jesus and, and how they should now relate as, as disciples of Jesus to their culture, which was everywhere, Permeated with the trappings of pagan idolatry. What what, what should I now do as a Christian as I go to the market? And that's really what's behind this part of 1 Corinthians. And it actually goes all the way back to chapter 8 and verse 1. That's where this entire section about meat and eating and drinking begins in this letter. In chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul writes this, now concerning food, Offered to idols, and I want you to think about this for a moment. You know, our our, our Bibles, especially our New Testaments, are rather thin, aren't they? And and uh, maybe sometimes we could wish that God had given us more special revelation than He's given us. Um, and when you think about proportionality, it's amazing, isn't it, that Paul spends three whole chapters in this letter of sixteen chapters. Talking about food offered to idols and how that relates to the lives of the people of God in first century Corinth. This was a big deal. It had serious ethical implications for them. And so it has a prominent place in this letter. Their lives couldn't help but intersect with the ungodly aspects of the culture around them, even at the most basic level of eating and drinking. And it's in that context that Paul gives this big, overarching principle in 1031. Here's the great guiding reality for us as the people of God, and and as Paul's writing these words, you, you followers of Jesus in Corinth, and you're trying to work out daily life in a pagan culture, this will help you. Keep this in mind in everything that you do. We've been created and we have been redeemed by God to live for his glory. So whatever you do, this is a safe guide for you. This is a question you should be asking. Can I participate in this to the glory of God? But then we can ask ourselves the question, what does that look like? It's a big idea, isn't it? What does it look like to live for the glory of God? Maybe some of you have heard uh, of the Westminster Shorter Catechism and question number one, uh, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And, and, And we know those things, we understand that on some level, but what does it actually mean? Practically, day by day, in, in all the the big and the little things that comprise our lives in this world. Part of the challenge of working this out is that we're so prone to extremes, aren't we? As we seek to work out a principle like this in our lives. You think about the Christian life as a, as a narrow road, and there are ditches on each side, right? And part of the challenge of the Christian life is to stay on the road and not to fall off into the ditches, but we're so prone to doing that. Even in working out a principle like this we're prone to carelessness on the one side and perhaps rigidness on the other licentiousness on one side and legalism on the other perhaps we're prone to make living for the glory of God an elusive thing hard hard to get a a, a hold of especially maybe some of us struggle this way you know it's 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 not something that's attainable for me. You know, living for the glory of God, that's for the John Pipers of the world. That's for the, the super Christians, the Jonathan Edwards of the world. Uh, that's for frontier missionaries. Uh, they, they can do that, but it, I, don't, I don't think of it as something that, that, that I can really get a handle on. Who am I? How, I'm so small. I'm so insignificant. And I haven't been called to great things. I was talking to somebody before the service um, who who expressed that on some level. Um, back Back in the booth there, I'll give you away. Francis, just in our few minutes of talking, weren't you talking about that, Francis? I work at Wells Fargo, but then I read Matthew chapter 28, and I'm thinking, how do I work out the Great Commission while working at, do you ever wrestle with that kind of thing? Am I really living for the glory of God where I am? That's, that's for other people. Perhaps we think it's only tied to doing explicitly Christian things, like teaching Sunday school or sharing the gospel, like explicitly communicating the gospel to others or going to church. It's then that we're, we're, we're glorifying God. And you know what we're doing when we do that? We're, we're making this distinction between the sacred and the secular And that's to me one of the ditches that we have to avoid falling into. So, how do we live for the glory of God? And how do we do it every day in all that we do in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at our church, in our jobs, at our schools? That's what we need to grapple with in this passage. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is to make three observations from the context, from the passage, about living for the glory of God. And I hope it will help us to maybe make some connection to our daily lives. The first, I think, may surprise you. But I think I have to mention it in order to be faithful to the text. Okay, so observation number one, we live for the glory of God when we enjoy his good gifts. We live for the glory of God when we enjoy his good gifts. And I'm drawing this from verses 25 through 27 of 1 Corinthians 10. Now let me give you a little more of the context here. Back in chapters 8 through 10, Paul addressed the specific matter of Christians in Corinth who were actually going To the pagan temples and joining in their feasts. Now, be clear about this. They were not going thinking, I'm worshiping idols or I'm participating like the rest of the people here. What was happening in Corinth is that some of the Christian believers there had come to knowledge. They had come to understand, in truth, that idols are nothing, right? you understand that right that that this this block of wood or this this statue uh, made out of stone that in and of itself it's actually nothing because why there's one god one true and living god the father son and holy spirit and so they had come to this knowledge they recognized that what was happening there wasn't wasn't real because idols aren't real and so to them going to the temple to participate in those feasts there was nothing wrong with that in a sense i think it was like going out to eat it was a, it was a place to go get a meal but paul says in addressing that specific matter no <laughs> no You you think you've come to some knowledge, and knowledge tends to puff up, and, and you think this is an expression of your maturity, but you're actually missing some vitally important spiritual, eternal, unseen truths. First of all, it is true that idols are nothing in themselves, but Paul argues that idol temples and what's happening in idol temples are full of demonic activity. And you need to recognize that. And one of the things I think Paul wanted them to understand is you as a Christian might be able to go and participate in that meal, not participating in the pagan idolatry. But what about all the people around you who, who think something significant spiritually is actually happening? What, what are, what's happening in their lives and in their souls? They are being blinded by the devil and in that blindness, uh, they are in bondage to false religion and false worship. And their participation in those things is taking them to hell. And so I, I don't want you as believers to sit down at the table of demons and then come back to church and sit down at the table of the Lord. There's just such a, a an inconsistency there. So no, you you, you can't go... And do that. And then the second thing Paul points out about that is some of your other brethren in the church don't have that same knowledge that you do. And you know what you're doing? You're hurting them. You're hurting their consciences. You're hurting their souls. They see you going and they don't have that same knowledge, that same liberty that you have. And so they're being emboldened to sin. And so, no, I don't want you. To actually go to the temple and participate in those feasts. But now here, in 1023 through111, 1, Paul addresses two more questions related to meat that had been offered to idols. Remember, I said earlier, this stuff just permeated culture. So it shows up in, in some other areas. First, he's addressing in this section, the issue of meat sold in the market from those temples. Perhaps uh, there was some meat that was left over from those idolatrous festivals and the priests or somebody else uh, took some of that meat and they took it to the market and they sold it. So the question is, should Christians uh, buy that meat and and use it for themselves? A second question, a second scenario uh, is uh, perhaps being invited to a non-Christian's house and they're serving some meat. And should the Christian wonder whether or not that was meat that had been offered uh, in a pagan sacrifice? Now, the answer that he gives, and remember the heading that we're addressing now, we glorify God when we enjoy his good gifts. The answer that Paul gives to those two questions is quite remarkable, and I think it's really quite wonderful. His answer in verses 25 through 27 of chapter 10 is this, Christian You are free to eat meat without asking questions of conscience. You're free to eat meat without asking any questions of conscience. And the basis that he gives for this instruction we find in verse 26. This is actually a quote from Psalm 24.1. Why is the Christian free to eat meat without asking questions about its origin? Well, that's because the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof. You see what Paul is doing here? He's saying, as Christians, we know the real origin of all things. All things belong to God, our Father, and all that we have as Christians, as His people, has been freely given to us by God, and we are free to enjoy those good gifts for His glory with thanksgiving. And so he's saying, you know where it came from, and you really don't need to quibble over its last stop before it arrived on your table. We're free to enjoy God's good gifts to his glory with thanksgiving. And this is a principle that was very important to Paul. It may sound like a little thing, but it was very important to Paul he repeats this same idea in other places. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 4, Paul says, Every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And later in 1 Timothy, Paul speaks of our God, the living God, listen, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now, why was this so important to Paul? I mean, doesn't Paul know that if he were to emphasize this kind of thing too much that we might slide into carelessness and licentiousness and worldliness and selfishness? Doesn't he know well, No, this was important to Paul because this was actually a gospel issue? Freedom in Christ is a gospel issue. It's all about the coming of Jesus into the world and what he came to accomplish in the lives of his people. You see, in Christ, the new covenant has come. And we have been released from the restrictions, especially the the dietary restrictions of the Mosaic law. Jesus himself, when he was in the world, declared all foods clean. And nothing was to be forbidden or refused if received with thanks to the glory of God. Another thing Jesus has done for us by his death on the cross, he has set free our individual consciences from the consciences of others in matters of individual liberty. We're free in Christ. We are not to be bound by the scruples of others in matters of individual liberty. Now this this subject of Christian liberty certainly doesn't mean that we're free to indulge what God has forbidden. We're certainly not free to ignore what God has positively commanded, but here's the point, where there is no clear command for the Christian in Christ, there is liberty. And we glorify God When we receive and enjoy his good gifts. Because it reflects on him, doesn't it? That we serve a very good and kind and gracious God who delights to give good gifts to your people. Does it honor you as a parent when you do something nice for one of your children? And their response is, oh, no, I, I'm so unworthy. I, I, could, I could never take something like that from you, Dad or Mom. Maybe it's Christmas morning and they, they come to you afterwards and they, they give you all the gifts back. And, oh, I hope you kept the receipt. You can take these back because I'm so unworthy. Does that honor you? Maybe they act shocked when you do something nice for them. Because it seems so out of character. And it reflects that maybe their view of you is, wow, dad is stingy and he's doing something nice. No, what, what, what honors us as parents when our, our kids respond with gratitude and with joy and with thanks to our good gifts? It honors us when, when it, it reflects their view of us, when they receive those gifts in that way. Is it any different with us, with our Heavenly Father? In the context here, the point is this. We're talking about living for the glory of God. And as we try to work out what that means in our daily lives, listen, brethren, there is a kind of austerity in Christians that does not honor God. We're called to exercise self-control in all things. That is true. And we'll see as we go along that there are Higher, more important principles that guide us beyond just the full exercise and enjoyment of our liberties. But here's the point I think Paul is making here. An approach to the Christian life that portrays God as stingy, or that requires us to be over-scrupulous or fussy or legalistic about every little thing, that simply does not represent, well, our God who made all things. Who made food to taste good. Do you ever actually stop and think about that? I mean, he could have made food, all food, to taste like oatmeal without brown sugar or milk. Same consistency, same color, same flavor. He could have done that. Now maybe you love that, but... He didn't do that. He made food to taste good. Why? It's a reflection of what he's like. He made music to be pleasant. And even in a way, in a strange way, to minister to our souls, I think. He made art to be beautiful. He made love to be sweet. He made relationships to be enjoyable. And he gives us individually, uniquely, gifts and talents and aptitudes and interests and burdens that can all be employed in a way that honors God, our maker. And so we live to the glory of God when we enjoy and we employ his good gifts with thanksgiving in christ we have a rich liberty that can be enjoyed to his glory and that's a wonderful blessing of life in christ this may sound silly to you but just about every time i eat bacon i thank god that i'm in the new covenant and and again i'm not just saying that to to be funny I mean, I really like bacon. And we've been set free, haven't we, from those dietary restrictions of the old covenant. Christ has made all foods to be clean and to be richly enjoyed with thanksgiving to God. So we have that liberty and we can glorify God in the enjoyment of his good gifts. Now comes the but. But... Christian liberty is not an absolute liberty. It is not an absolute liberty. So we go on now to observation number two. According to our passage, we live for the glory of God when we serve the good of others. We live for the glory of God when we serve the good of others. And I'm going to draw this out of a number of places in the passage So here we see the limits of liberty, or to state it another way, here we see those higher principles, those more important principles to which we must willingly subordinate our enjoyment of legitimate things. Verses 23 and 24. All things are lawful, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. It's really interesting what Paul's doing here in the ESV and the NIV, at least. I know that this, this phrase, all things are lawful, is in quotation marks, and I think that's actually right. I think that's a proper way of representing what Paul's doing. He's quoting an expression that was very common in the church in Corinth. This is something you would hear the, the, the people of God in Corinth saying often, all things are lawful. And maybe they wrote that to Paul. It seems that what's behind Paul's letters to Corinth are letters that they wrote to him and, and questions that they asked him. And maybe this was something they were expressing to him. And so he's quoting it back to them. And you notice that he doesn't deny that this is true. It's actually true. For the Christian, all things are lawful for us. All things are permissible for us. Again, within the express will of God in the scriptures. But, Paul goes on to make some really important qualifications here, doesn't he? The sum and substance of living for the glory of God is not the enjoyment of our personal liberties. Christian liberty is important. It's a gospel issue. Christ died to set us free from Old Testament laws and our consciences from the oppression of other people around us and from human governments. Yes, it's a gospel issue. But that's not the highest and best way for us to live the glory of God. There's something else we must consider. There's something more important. There's something that reflects what God himself is like. And so he follows this quotation with some important questions. All things are lawful for me, but is it helpful? Is it helpful to me in my walk with Jesus? Is it helpful to those around me? All things are lawful for me, but does it build up? Does it do spiritual good to me in my walk with the Lord, and to my family, or to my brethren in the church, or to my neighbors, or to my classmates at school, or to uh, my workmates in the office. Is it helpful? Is it edifying? And then he, he kind of summarizes the, the point here in verse 24. How do you live for the glory of God? Here it is Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. He goes on to illustrate this principle in verses 28 through 30. And here again is this scenario of a Christian being invited to a non-Christian's home. And he says there, if you're invited to that home, you're free to eat. Whatever is set before you, you are free to eat it. But, he's illustrating the principle he just gave us in 23 and 24. If someone brings up the matter of the origin of the meat, As a matter of conscience to them, it was significant enough to them that they brought it up to you, hey, this was meat offered to idols, then don't eat, Paul says. Why? It's for their conscience sake, so that it would not be offensive to them, so it would not be a hindrance to them or a stumbling block to them. There is a time and a place for us, brethren, to know when we need to set aside liberty for the sake of another. When we're seeking not our own good, but the good of our neighbor. He goes on then in 32 and 33. Again, coming back to these ideas and emphasizing them again, he says, Give no offense. Give no offense. First, to Jews and Greeks, and there I think he's, he's talking about unbelievers who are either Jewish or Gentile in background. Give no offense to unbelievers or to the church of God. So that includes everybody, doesn't it? The unbelievers around us and the Christians with whom we're in fellowship in the church Conduct yourself in such a way, use your liberties in such a way that no one will take offense, whether outside or inside the church. What does he mean by giving no offense? I think with respect to unbelievers, I think he's saying don't set up any obstacles to their hearing of the gospel. What about with Christians? How do we give offense to Christians in the church? Well, again, it's this idea of causing fellow believers to stumble in their own conscience, to perhaps... Uh, move into sin, whereas they wouldn't have apart from what they saw in us and, and us doing. Give no offense to Christians or non Christians. And that brings us to the real good that we're to seek. We talk about serving the good of others in the ultimate sense. What is that? Look at the end of verse 33. Paul says, I try to please everyone. And you know he doesn't mean he's a people pleaser in a sinful sense there. He's, he's talking about the way that he works out the very principles we're looking at in this passage. He says, I'm, I'm trying to uh, open doors for the gospel with unbelievers and to be edifying and helpful to my fellow Christians in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but look, but that of many that they may be saved. The big idea that Paul has in mind here, as he thinks about living out his life to the glory of God with respect to the people around him, in and outside of the church, it's their final salvation. That's the good that he has in view. It's their souls. It's the good of their souls in an eternal sense. To live for the glory of God, Paul is saying, is to willingly give of ourselves, even at times to relinquish our liberties in Christ in order to serve the good of others, and the greatest good is to seek the salvation of others. And doesn't this glorify God? Because this is what God is like. It's so near to the heart of God, our God who desires that none would perish but that all would come to repentance, our God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If that's what God is like, oh God, help me to never put a stumbling block in the way of an unbeliever from hearing that good news and never causing one of your blood-bought children to fall this is what god is like and i believe brethren we're never so much like god when we're honoring the grace and mercy of god toward the souls of others in christ when you have time later go back and read first corinthians 9 paul gives a fuller explanation of his approach to life <laughs> I'm free from all, but I've made myself a servant of all that I might win more of them. To the weak, I became weak. To the Jew, I became like a Jew. To the Gentile, I became like a Gentile. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I want to just say at this point, Paul was writing to people just like you and me. Okay, so don't Don't slide back into that mentality that this whole discussion is for others. You know, where I am in life right now, the place in life I find myself, and uh, I I can't do this. Oh, yes, you can. He, he, He was writing this to... Mothers at home with children. He's writing this to men who had to get up every day and spend 10 to 12 hours in the workplace. He was writing this uh, to people who were suffering uh, physically. He was writing this to people whose hearts were broken by many disappointments, who were dealing with deaths in their families. He, he knew all of that. He's saying, I want you to live for the glory of God by serving the good of others And and, and one of the best ways you can do that is don't forget that they have never dying souls. And do what you do in everything that you do so that they might be saved. And I wanted to say here, um, I want you to think a little bit differently about this than we sometimes do in the church. I believe Paul is calling us here to think about the salvation of everyone around you, Christian and non-Christian. Doesn't he do that here? He says, give no offense to Jews and Gentiles outside the church or to the church of God. He's saying, you need to have in view the final salvation of your brethren in the church. Don't cause anyone... To stumble, care about their souls, care about their perseverance in the faith and how you live affects that. And you, 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 want, you want to be helpful to that end. You want to be upbuilding to that end. So it's not just about concern for the lost. And it's not sufficient for us just to say, oh, they're safe in Jesus, they're saved. Uh, I don't need to worry about the effect of my actions on them. No, Paul says, have their final salvation in view give them no cause of stumbling. So my desire this morning has been to help us to think practically about this big idea of living for the glory of God. And when you think about it this way, imagine the impact in our lives and the lives of those around us if God helped us to seek to live this way every day in all of our dealings with others. If God were to help us you know, when we get up in the morning and, and to make this part of our prayers, Lord, help me to see people not just as flesh and blood, but as what they really are, never-dying souls. Help me not to forget the realities of heaven and hell. Isn't that, that means just the easiest thing to do. Help me to see people as you see them, and then to bend my life in the direction Of seeking their good, especially their highest good, the salvation of their souls. Do you think that would make a difference in your life and in mine? I think it would. You know, the easiest place to forget this, I think, is at home. So I would just encourage you what do I do with this message this morning? Start at home, right where you are. Not just parents or husbands or wives here this morning, whatever place you're at in life. Uh, Kids, hear this one I hope you will think about this because you can do this too you can live for the glory of God in your home in the way that you're relating to your siblings and your parents start there it's one of the hardest places in the world to do this you know You get up in the morning and God helps you to have your quiet time and you have a great time in the word. And I mean, you you used eight different colors to highlight your Bible that morning and and you're so excited and you're praying to God. Oh, I want to live for your glory today. And then you walk out of the room. How long does it actually take for it to become a challenge To live for the glory of God by not seeking your own good, but the good of those who live under the roof with you. How long does it take? Less than a minute? Wouldn't it make a difference if God helped us to do this in the way that we're responding to others, in the way that we're speaking to others, in the attitudes of our hearts towards others? It's not just flesh and blood, brethren. It's never dying souls. It's not in the big things, is it? According to this text, it, it's in the little things that we can live for the glory of God. It starts at home. It comes to us it comes with us to work and, and, and to school and in our neighborhoods. We need to be willing to ask, in all that we do, is it helpful? Is it edifying? Is it serving the good of souls? Or is it a cause of stumbling? Now maybe you're tempted to think, well, i It seems like I'm exchanging one kind of bondage for another. This sounds like bondage. Do I really have to be thinking about everything I do as to whether it's helpful or whether it's edifying, brethren? This is not bondage. This is freedom. This is this is the freedom to to fulfill the very purpose for which we've been made. We're free in Christ. There's a time and a place for everything for enjoying our, our liberties to the glory of God, but. Don't be deceived. Living for yourself with no regard for others, that's bondage. And it also becomes very oppressive to the people in our lives. Here's true freedom. Here, I believe, is true joy, true satisfaction, when God helps us to get out of ourselves and to be like him, having supreme regard for the good, especially the souls of those around us. Well, let's come... To the third and final observation as we close. And this just kind of sums it all up. The third observation is this. We live for the glory of God when we imitate Jesus. Chapter 11 and verse 1. We live for the glory of God when we imitate Jesus. Paul says at the end, the imitators of me as I am of Christ. And you know that his purpose here isn't to draw attention to himself. It is to quickly deflect it to Jesus. So often the argument Paul makes when he wants to impress some aspect of our duty on us is this very argument. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to the example of Christ for how we suffer as Christians. Look to the example of Christ for how to be humble and how to love your wife and how to give of your money and how to serve the good of others. You want to know how to do that? You want to know what that looks like? God has given us the picture of perfect humanity in the face of Jesus Christ. It's one of the things I love about the incarnation is that God, who is kind of a distant idea to us, the unseen God, has become seen. He's become visible in the face of Jesus. And we could look at him and see, this is God's intention for us. And what was Jesus like? What motivated him? What, what drove him in coming into this world? One of my favorite descriptions of the coming of Christ is in Romans 15, 8 and 9. There Paul says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles, the nations, might glorify God for his mercy. Why did Jesus come? He came to be a servant So that Jews and Gentiles alike might know that God is true and faithful and that he saves. Gospel of Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So brethren, here is where we truly begin to understand what it means to live for the glory of God. Study the pattern of our Savior. He willingly humbled himself. He relinquished his rights and his freedoms as God. And he laid down his life to do us and a vast multitude, ultimate good, eternal good, by saving us from our sins. So, like Jesus, we glorify God. When we do all that we do with his help, with a Christ-imitating self-denying regard for the good of the souls around us so that's tough (laughs) that's hard it is hard isn't it that fight with self never ends this side of heaven how how do we work this in this christ imitating self-denying regard for souls we just we got to be with jesus we have to feed our souls on the gospel day in and day out. His mercy to us so that that begins to, to permeate the way that we're relating to others. It's to fellowship with him, to see him as he's portrayed in the scriptures. And in that way, we grow to be more and more like him. This one, brethren, this dear one who gave himself so freely for us on the cross... He will certainly give us the help that we need to be like him and to begin to put this into practice in our lives. He knows all of our circumstances. He knows all of our weaknesses. He knows all of our fears. He knows all of our struggles. He knows all of that. But I guarantee you, it's money in the bank. If you go to Jesus and earnestly pray to him, Lord Jesus, help me today to be like you in the way that I willingly put my interests aside and serve the interests of others, he will answer that prayer. He will. It won't be easy, but he will give you the grace. So the question for us is, will you trust him? Will you ask him for help? Will you love him and others enough to be willing to change some some? some patterns in your life, some behaviors that characterize you that maybe aren't consistent with living for the glory of God as we've seen it this morning. Are you willing to do that for Christ's sake and for the sake of never dying souls? Jesus will help you with that. And I will tell you he's worthy that we as his people would come to him for that and would seek to live in that way for his glory. Glory! Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Worthy is the Lamb. It's worthy that we would live for his glory. Why? Because he was slain. So he's worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and to have some people in all of our brokenness and all of our weakness who love him enough and who appreciate enough what he's done for us to seek every day with his help to live for his honor by imitating him. Amen.